Hi, welcome everyone to another Vibe podcast by WCAPS, Women of Color for Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Kara Hernandez, and I'm the chair of the Illicit Trafficking Working Group and the co-chair of the Latin American Caribbean Working Group for WCAPS. I'm excited to sit down with my guest today, Sharice Hopkins from Rights for Girls, an advocacy and human rights organization changing narratives and policies that criminalize girls who have been impacted by gender-based violence. She has been the staff attorney for the last three years, and Sharice, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on. Yes, of course. So I had heard for Rights for Girls because I saw your conference of Women of Color Against Sex Trade. And I was wondering if you tell me a little bit more about the conference and why it was important to have this forum. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think the forum is was important because women and girls of color are disproportionately impacted by the sex trade. Um, they are disproportionately impacted by um, the different uh, forms of oppression, you know, that that are pushing people into the sex trade, but yet, you know, their voices are often missing. Um, you know, this this was a type of event that we don't really hear about, and so that's why it was really important to do it to make sure that that survivor leaders, specifically survivor leaders who are women of color, um, had a platform to talk about, um, you know, the sex trade, which is having such big and harmful impacts on them and their communities. And so what it was essentially was um, our friends at Space International, which is a survivor-led organization formed in Ireland, they have put on a Women of Color Against the Sex Trade event abroad, I believe it was in London, and they wanted to um, bring it to the U.S. because, you know, we're having really important conversations about the sex trade here, and they thought that was a really great way to to again highlight the voices of women of color and so they reached out to us um, as well as one of our other partners to have an event in new york and in dc and really what the event was was it was featuring survivor leaders um, around the world um, different cities in the u.s south africa um, the first nations in canada and the netherlands who are really providing insights on the specific ways that the sex trade um, preys on women and girls of color um, and how um, really connecting the dots between um, some of the histories of colonialism around the world and how, uh, you know, not just, I guess, fueling the sex trade in the past, but also today. No, I think that's really interesting. It's one of those things that really caught my attention when I saw it, because you do see, you know, women of color being spoken about when it comes to the sex trade, but you don't really see necessarily their voices being heard. So it was one of those events I thought was really interesting to have in D.C. and really important. And I was just wondering, did you or any of the participants find out anything surprising or unexpected? Because it does seem like you had such like, uh, you know, international group. Right. You know, um, well, first, I do want to say before I forget that uh, footage from the event is still available on Rights for Girls Facebook page. Um, so people are still able to go um, and hear directly from the survivors who are on the panel by watching that video. But I do think um, I do think people heard some some unexpected or surprising information. There was so much. It was just really powerful. I think it, it's hard to put to put into words, um, but it's really powerful, really insightful. And so I think there are probably different things stood out to different people. Um, but I think one of the things that really came through is kind of what we're talking about, how women of color, um, girls of color are so impacted, but their voices are missing. And so I think one thing that probably really resonated for everyone um, was hearing from all these women, um, these amazing leaders who are from different parts of the world, um, you know, different races, um, different ethnicities, but really talking about things that they had in common, including how 
a lot of conversations about the sex trade really seem to sanitize it um, and doing so or overlooking the harm that they experience. And one of the things I think that people really heard was how um, sex buyers are so problematic and are really viewed as, you know, being harmful, um, but we're really causing a lot of harm, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, physical violence, you know, the uh, trauma um, to women of color. And oftentimes, you know, it was um, not just women of color, but girls of color. And so they were really highlighting, um, you know, I think really dispelling these notions that the people who are buying women of color for sex, which they, um, many of them pointed out um, is oftentimes white men, um, you know, that they're, that they're harmful, uh, harmless, excuse me, you know, really pointing out the fact that um, they were not just, that they're perpetuating the stereotypes, perpetuating the racism and the sexism and the harms, you know, and that there's this real entitlement um, there seemed to black women and girls, or not black women and girls, excuse me, but the bodies of women and girls of color, um, you know, and that whenever we overlook that, you know, that we're basically compounding and adding to the harm that they experience. So I think that was one of, again, there was so much, it was a wealth of information, um, but I think that was one of the points that was probably really powerful for people because, you know, you're hearing women from all parts of the world who were sharing very similar experiences in that regard. It's so interesting that the parallel that you were talking about, about colonialism and about this kind of like idea that was, you know, to go to these other lands and then conquer these other lands. And it's like the same, almost the same idea with, but with people's bodies and, you know, young girls and women. Um, but it's kind of like this idea of this really interesting kind of parallel that you kind of see still happening in the modern age. Yeah, it's just um, something that always kind of strikes me when we talk about the subject especially when you see kind of like the trade of, um, I work a lot in Latin America, obviously, but when you see the trade of, you know, either Afro-Latinas or Latinas um, or indigenous women to other parts of the world, it's kind of like this, I kind of like this, in, like in sort of exporting colonialism, it's kind of importing colonialism into their own kind of world of purview. Um, but that's really interesting. So when I hear you talking, a lot of it that comes up is kind of like this need for this intersectionality when discussing this topic. And I was just wondering, in your perspective, what is, why is intersectionality important in, combat, in combating human trafficking? You know, I, I think intersectionality is important, right? Because if we don't have an intersectional lens, then we're, we're really missing the core of what's taking place. You know, if, if women and girls of color are disproportionately being impacted, if we don't have that intersectionality, you know, if we aren't looking um, at gender and gender identity and race, um, then we're missing, you know, who's being impacted. You know, so many people have been surprised to, to learn that, that women and girls of color are disproportionately impacted because when you look at the movies, when you look at even the posters, you know, meant to reach out to survivors, that they are not often showing women and girls of color, uh, you know, kind of like we're talking about, you know, the, the, the colonialism, you know, you miss the the historical roots of it and kind of these underlying oppressions that are making people vulnerable. One um, Native woman who was on the on the panel, she said that indigenous communities around the world, there were no words for describing sex, you know, that this was not something that was practiced or familiar in their communities, you know, as a result of, of colonization is something that was pushed upon them. And then, you know, the other thing we talked about was, you know, disparities in terms of, of what's happening to, to women and girls of color in a sex trade, you know, the, the, the white men who were buying them are 
again, you know, they're often kind of viewed as harmless, um, maybe even themselves as the ones who've been victimized and there's no accountability for them, but yet women and girls of color are, are being, you know, put, put into jail and being incarcerated and having to deal with all those collateral consequences. So I think intersectionality is really important because without it, you know, we're really missing like who's being impacted, how they're being impacted, you know, why, um, as well as, you know, what, what is it that they need and, and actually, you know, getting to the root of what is effective help and going back to the beginning of our conversation, like their voices, you know, like without intersectionality, you know, how are we actually uplifting survivor voices and addressing the needs of survivors if those survivors are being ignored and overlooked? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it feels almost, I don't even know what to call it, but it's one of those things I think as a woman of color, sometimes you can identify a feeling rather quicker than you can identify the word for it or the name for something because right. it's so commonplace. But it's one of those things where it's like, oh, thank you for talking on my behalf, but I also have a voice and a mind um, just because I didn't go to the same college or if they're you know, a victim of something doesn't mean that they are, then can articulate something probably better than I can articulate it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, can't articulate their feelings or their needs or things that they think could change from the inside. But it's really interesting to kind of see that narrative. And I do think, you know, there's organizations like Rights for Girls really doing the work and really giving a mouthpiece and the resources, which is most important to women and girls and leaders in, in, the, in the sex trade that, to kind of combat this. So I do really commend the work that you're doing. And for people who want to know more about this topic, are there any resources or upcoming events that they can attend? I know with COVID pandemic, things have been affected, everyone's advocacy work, but if you have anything that you can share, I think people would be really interested in learning more. Yes, absolutely. There are two things that come to mind um, as upcoming events. One is um, there's a presentation that I'll be giving on May 7th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. It's on the historical impact of the sex trade on women and girls of color today. And that is being hosted by World Without Exploitation. They also go by World Lead. The other one's going to be in June. Um, That one is on the, multi, uh, the need for multidisciplinary response to child sex trafficking. Um, it's really gonna highlight the efforts of Suffolk County. They're doing a lot of great work to address child sex trafficking. And I'm gonna be presenting along with the Children's Advocacy Center of Suffolk County and a direct service provider called My Life, My Choice there. Um, they both do incredible work. And that's on June 23rd at 3 p.m. I'd also encourage people, please, we are active on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we, I'm sure more things will be coming up. We post about not only the events that we're doing, but the events that our partners do, as well as great resources and information. So it's kind of a good way to stay up to date. And we also have a website that is has reports, fact sheets that really talk about the sex trade, the, so the things we're talking about, the intersectional lens and its disproportionate impact on women and girls of color, but also looking at um, the sex trade and sex trafficking from a cross-disciplinary approach. So that what are the intersections, for example, with juvenile justice and with child welfare? And then the other um, thing I would say is that um, it's Sexual Assault Awareness Month, it's Child Abuse Awareness Month, um, and ourselves and I'm sure our partners are really trying to share information online to help connect the dots of the fact that 
sex trafficking, sexual exploitation, um, and a lot of experiences that women have in the sex trade are forms of sexual assault. Um, and also highlighting the fact that for many um, who were in the sex trade, they were uh, trafficked, many adults were trafficked as children, um, which in and of itself is child abuse, but before being trafficked, many survivors experience um, most survivors experienced child abuse before they were trafficking. Um, so there's, I think this month, April, um, there's probably uh, even more events that are taking place that are good or just information shared on social media. That'll be a really great opportunity to, to continue to learn about this issue. Oh, thank you so much for sharing. And I'll definitely be able to share some of the links when we put up the podcast. So if you're interested, please be on the lookout in the description for this podcast. We'll try to share as many links and resources for people. But what really calls my attention is this idea of people who are trafficked or who, people who are sexually exploited later on generally have experienced some sort of violence in their childhood. And even you know, with my work in illicit trafficking, I focused mainly on working with uh, women in prison and for the micro-trafficking of drugs. We really had to kind of deconstruct what is violence. A lot of times people think, you know, it's just, you know, something very extreme, but it, there are all these different types of violence and this kind of cycle of violence that kind of feels inherent to a family. And sometimes people try to equate it to inherent to a culture, which I don't believe myself. Um, I don't believe that is necessarily true. And so when working with these women in prison, a lot of them had young, young children with them to kind of see you know, people opening up and, and, you know, identifying with things that we would necessarily as researchers say, oh, like, this is abuse. Like, you know, our therapist would be like, this is our different types of abuse and this is different types of violence. And they'd be like, oh, well, I guess, yeah, that, of course that happened. And to kind of see how this, you know, builds up and um, it leads people to either getting um, exploited themselves. Um, you know, a lot of these women who were exploited for micro-trafficking drugs were actually being forced to hold, you know, arms or guns or sometimes, you know, in the, not necessarily being in sold or anything like that, but they would sometimes be pressured into the sex trade. And it's interesting to kind of see how they themselves didn't see themselves as sex trade survivors or, you know, sexually exploited, even though sometimes they were being forced to do sexual acts for money for their family members or for their boyfriends or something like that. So it's, it's kind of interesting to kind of see how the connections between the two different worlds, because especially in places like Costa Rica or, you know, other places in the world, those kind of overlap, these kind of markets. Um, but it's really interesting. I really am excited to hear, especially on the historical impact uh, of the sex trade, because I think that's something I, I think a lot of us would be really interesting to know more. Um, but that sounds all really exciting. And I, I, you know, I'm really fascinated to hear more about you. And I would love if you could tell us a little bit more about your background. And how did you start working for Rights for Girls? Um, I just think you have a really interesting background that people would, would love to hear about. Well, thanks. Yeah, I'm happy to share. It's um, not conventional, so I'll try to, to be quicker in sharing it. But essentially, <laughs> I uh, when I graduated from, from undergrad, I worked for a municipality for a few years. And then I decided I wanted to go to law school because I thought that, you know, I wanted to help people and I thought that law school would give me great tools and opportunities to be able to do that. And then I went to law school and um, 
for several reasons, I wound up very away from the public interest path. And when I graduated, I was in big law and went to a law firm practicing employment law. Quickly learned that that wasn't for me. And so after a couple years, I went in-house at at Target. Um, and while there are things, you know, about employment law that I liked, um, you know, I still had that desire to, to do more um, for community and more social justice minded things, you know, in my head. And so as part of going to Target, I actually moved to a different state. I hadn't been practicing long enough to wave into the bar there. So I had to take a second bar exam and I bought a house. Um, and the month after I closed on the house and found I passed the bar exam, I just had this realization that I couldn't um, shake or deny anymore that I wasn't fulfilled. And so I quit my job, even though I didn't have a job. Um, and after all that, and I just, you know, it took some time to get back to me, um, including um, doing some work to be able to name, like, what is my passion? Um, what is my purpose? Um, and that's where I really kept coming back to gender equity and racial equity. It had always been there, um, but I think, you know, sometimes there are things that we're so close to or that are just such a natural part of who we are that the thought that this could be a job, um, you know, doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't cross our minds. At least that was the case for me. And so, um, and so, you know, through that process, I was like, wait, you know, like there are people who work on this. This is, they wake up and every day this is what they do. And so um, I, with, with my background as a lawyer, you know, I specifically want to get involved in terms of, of policy work. And so I started doing um, just networking, doing research, you know, what does policy work on these issues look like, who are the people doing the work, where's the place to be to do the work, and did informational interviews. And kind of while I was job hunting, I was also doing some consulting for small businesses and organizations that were founded and led by women and people of color. And so um, fast forward to my my networking and doing the informational interviews eventually got me connected to Yasmin, the executive director of Rights for Girls. Um, and I was really interested in their work uh, because, uh, again, you know, wanting to, to engage in gender equity, racial justice, and that was not just a part of how Rights for Girls did its work, but it was, you know, fundamental to the work that Rights for Girls did, you know, which issues Rights for Girls focused on, how they focus on those issues was really coming with a gender and racial lens and making sure that the, the voices and needs of young women and girls of color were centered. Um, and not only was I not seeing that a lot, but actually I had had um, more than one person tell me, you know, that I may have to choose between racial justice work um, and gender equity work, which was crazy to me because women of color, girls of color, we exist. <laughs> so um, I was really excited to, to find Rights for Girls. And when I connected with Rights for Girls, I had reached out um, and really learning about the work. I'd reached out about volunteering, um, but when Yasmin learned that I did consulting, she actually hired me to do some consulting work with Rights for Girls. So for about a year, I was doing research and project-based work which was great because it gave us an opportunity to get to know each other. Um, it gave me them an opportunity to see um, my work and what I could contribute. It gave me an opportunity to learn them and like 
you know, how they operate and how they gauge in the work plus the issues themselves. And so after about a year, then I came on um, full time with Rights for Girls. Um, and now it's three years later and here I am. As somebody who also has a very unconventional background, it's one of those things I really love hearing because I think growing up, um, I also went to a school in uh, undergrad in Texas. So I was like, oh, how interesting. Um, I really was kind of told, um, in my age bracket at least, that it's probably very different for young people coming up now. Um, this is the plan to get to how things are. And even coming to DC, you know, people were like, you need to have come to come from an elite institution um, with this type of experience and this type of thing, or else you can only do these four things. Or, you know, I've been told many, many times, uh, oh, but you need to have gone to Princeton to work there, or you need to have done this to work there. I was like, I think you're telling me this because I am a woman of color. If I was a just, you know, something else, I think people would give me a very different advice. So it's kind of seeing that challenge um, and facing it every single day. It's one of those things where hearing different stories and hearing that you took time for yourself to really figure out what you want, you know, is, is a luxury for some people. But it is something that I think everyone needs to do, you know, whether that is taking time off from like, and you know, in the pandemic, it's a little bit harder, I guess. But taking the you know the weekends off to really just focus on yourself and not to give more, and also learning. There's this one thing I've really focused on in the working groups is that I find myself telling women a lot. It's okay that you're doing this just for yourself. You know, you, you it, this is something that will help you only, and this will help you grow and be a, whether it's being a better writer or you know, sharing their voice more or whatever, whatever it is. It's like, it's okay that you're doing this work just for yourself and you need to find value in that versus kind of working, you know, because of your family expectations or because work tells you to do that or your boss. It's like, this is due, you know, at this date, you know, I always say, you know, be nice to yourself, but also, you know, realize you are enough value. Um, so I think having stories like yours and, especially going from something that is, you know, seemingly from the outside, like, oh, she bought a house and she has a great new job and all this thing, everything's coming together, but saying like, oh, but I wasn't happy and that's okay. But I found my happiness and, you know, you're doing great work now. Um, and I just think that's really exciting to hear. I think stories like that are things that we need to hear even in professional settings like DC, you don't really necessarily hear that as much. So I'm excited to talk to you. But for people who, um, are there any tips that you would give women of color interested in entering the field? Or alternatively, if there are people who just, you know, have a passion and would like to volunteer, what's the best way to do that? So I guess two different questions, but um, I think people would really like to hear your advice. Yeah, I have thoughts on both. But first, I just want to thank you for what you shared, because I agree. I think that as women of color, we often have so many people trying to, I don't know, dictates the right word, but you know, have have a say or weigh in on what what our options are or what looks right for us. And so I think it's so important to, for what you just gave voice to, which is, you know, like it's it's okay for us to to consider ourselves as well um, and to reclaim our own narrative. So I just want to say like, thank you for what you shared. I really, I think it's important and absolutely agree. Um, and for, for those who think that, you know, getting involved in anti-trafficking work, 
um, in, in addressing the, the harms of the sex trade. Um, just want to say, you know, we need you. This is definitely, a, you know, a field that that we need more more women of color um, at, at the table and doing this work. So so please come join us. Um, in regards to volunteering, uh, the first thing I can think of is you know researching in your area to see if there's a local anti-trafficking organization. Um, and if so, seeing what their needs are, um, it can look differently now because of, of um, people if they can, you know, self-isolating in their homes. Um, but but that said, I do know that there um, that that some organizations, because of everything that's going on, are in need of more uh, volunteers um, because maybe the people that they're currently working with um, aren't able to to come out and assist them right now. So definitely, I would say checking the needs of, of the local organizations. Um, there's a group that I would mention. It's called a Firm. It's spelled AF3IRM, and they're a group of young women of color with different chapters around the country. Um, and they really do great work highlighting and elevating and educating the way the, harm, the, the sex trade is harmful to women and girls of color. Um, and so they address it from this bigger need for systems change, um, but then they are also very rooted and tied to the communities that they're in and really making, doing efforts to meet the needs of, of communities of color where they are. So that's a great organization um, that I work on looking into, especially since they have chapters in different parts of the country. And then the third thing I would say is maybe looking to where you currently are to see if there's a way to, to educate on this, this issue or maybe addressing it. For example, um, you know, maybe an opportunity to have um, experts, survivor leaders come in on a panel to to raise some some education and awareness maybe there's opportunities to to for policy change practice change um, at your organizations for example one of the things i think of is um, there are a lot of men who buy sex they do so um, at work during work time with their work computers and resources um, same thing you know a lot of people who exchange child abuse images um, they also do, you do it on work time with work resources. And so I know one of the ways that businesses have been getting involved um, is to make sure that they have policies in place to try to make sure that their resources cannot be used in a way that's harmful to, to children and to women of color. Um, so, you know, there may be some ways that as people are learning about trafficking and sex trade and how it operates, um, where even though at first glance, it seems like the work they're currently doing is is disconnected. Um, you know, they may figure out that there's some ways where you know it. Like I think, like if if we make these changes where I am, um, you know, we could help um, address this problem. So those are things I would I, I would suggest in regards to volunteering. Um, in regards to entering the field, I think volunteering can be a good way um, if it's not you know at an anti-trafficking organization. You know, there still are other organizations. Um, that do because you know the this problem is so complex. There are other organizations that are doing work, um, you know, that can still be very relevant to addressing sex trafficking. Um, I strongly recommend people take uh, training on trauma. You know what trauma is, um, how to be trauma informed in your work, um, as well as training on sex trafficking, um, harms with sex trade, just to be more informed. Um, you know, I think whenever you can show 
uh, potential employers, you know that this is an issue that not only you're passionate about, but you know, like you um, have informed and you have some perspective or some understanding of the work um, and how to be thoughtful in the work, I think can go a long way. And I would also just say researching organizations um, to find out, you know, who's doing work, how do they approach the work um, to get a sense of not only what opportunities are out there, but what opportunities specifically, you know, align with, with you. Um, and then following them, you know, checking their websites, following them on social media, because a lot of organizations in this field are smaller. So you may not necessarily find opportunities on Idealist, um, but it may just be through, you know, following the organizations, supporting their work, going to their events, um, you know, networking, um, I think can be a good way to, to get connected to. No, I think that's, that is true. I think, especially for the younger people out there who are listening, it is a struggle sometimes to find out how do you keep up and know about job opportunities coming up because, you know, for some of these organizations, um, they might not come up that often. So you don't have that kind of like turnaround um, that you might with larger companies. But I think it's really interesting that you, what you said about kind of an interesting way to tackle this which I actually had never thought about was having companies really talk about speaking to men or to women who actually buy sex or do sex trade or do any get involved in this kind of cycle of abuse at work using either company resources or company time and really talking about that. I think it's a great way initiative for women to approach, you know, either HR or leadership and really say, this is an issue that, they're passionate about and try to, to, to push this because whether it's happening at their company or not, I think it'll be really great to get that conversation started and having more people aware of what's going on. Um, I think that's really interesting. I hadn't heard of that before. And I think if people are interested in doing something like that, either a training or some sort of um, guidance, could they reach out to Right for Girls? Um, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Okay, perfect. No, I just want to make sure. And then with the training, the trauma trainings that you met uh, or training on working with sex trafficking victims, are there online courses people could take during the pandemic um, while everyone's kind of social distancing or are this, is this really more of like a in-person class, do you think? Yeah, I know I you think might not know this. But I was like, might as well ask. Uh, to no see harm in asking. Um, well, I think in regards to... So I think it's a combination. I think if, for example, if you're volunteering with an organization um, where you'd be working directly with survivors, then they're probably going to have like their own training that they want you to go through. But in terms of, I guess, a broader knowledge, um, there are definitely the online trainings available. So, you know, for example, I mentioned the ones that I'm doing. I know I'm sure that some of our, our partners will be doing training as as well um and so those may not be necessarily how you know working with with trafficking survivors it may be more um to just get an understanding of you know what the sex trade is who's being impacted how they're being harmed um and then for the trauma training off the top of my head i can't think of an organization a specific organization that provides training on trauma, but I know that they're out there. The one that I did was actually, um, I used to volunteer with a, a local YWCA, and so I did a 30-hour trauma-informed care training with 
home um, as part of uh, getting ready to, to work on their hotline and take hotline calls. Um, but it's one of those things, you know, where it, it translates, um, you know, it's relevant to the work that I'm currently doing. Um, so I, I guess I would say that it doesn't necessarily, I mean, if there is a specific training on trauma and sex trafficking, I think is great. I definitely recommend train, taking it, but I think it doesn't necessarily have to be that specific to, to be helpful and informative. Oh, perfect. No, that's great. And if I do a little research, I'll definitely put it in the notes if I find anything. Um, but yeah, I think this is a great conversation. I would love to possibly do more with you, um, possibly have just host it uh, for some survivor leaders to have a conversation. I think that would be really excellent as well. Um, it's just Absolutely. I think, in, yeah, I think, um, I mean, at the end of the day, I think, I remember you talking about um, when we first started talking about kind of that kind of inherently knowing something but putting a name to it. I think what you were talking to, you know, that survivors are, um, you know, they're they're the, they're the true experts, you know, they're the ones who have lived it. Um, and while it's important to um, give space for their, their stories, should they choose to share it, you know, that, you know, whether they want to share their stories or not, you know, they, they're the ones who are best suited to craft the solutions. And so I definitely welcome that idea. I think any, any time there's an opportunity to, to hear and learn from survivors, um, you know, I always welcome it. I think it's, it's very important. Absolutely. Well, stay tuned then. <laughs> we already kind of have our, our next idea um, unbooked then, I think, either in a podcast or a webinar form. I think that's going to be really exciting to have this as a follow-up conversation. But I just want to, again, thank you so much for your time. We've kind of had back and forth for weeks now, but I, I really appreciate having this conversation. And I, I look forward to hearing you on May 7th. Um, at 1 p.m. you said Eastern Standard yes and then absolutely. I will send the link around to for people and we'll definitely uh, keep in contact and I'm, I'm so excited to not only make a new contact but also a new friend so thank you again for your time and I hope everybody out there um, follows rights for girls is it rights for girls everywhere and I know it's our rights the number four girls yes um, Yes, that's, our, that's how you spell our name, and that's our handle on all three social media platforms. And I just want to say, likewise, I really appreciate um, this opportunity to just talk with you and to, to share about um, an issue that is um, so important um, and something that I'm so passionate about. So just, yeah, thank you for, for the opportunity and the time, and I'm looking forward to, to whatever comes next. No, okay. Well, thank you everybody for listening. And if you want to keep in contact, please reach out to Rights for Girls. And I also encourage everybody to uh, sign up to be a WCAPS member. It's free. We have um, a lot of interesting working groups um, on illicit trafficking or, you know, the Latin American working group. Those are the ones I cover. We also have some on global health as well as entrepreneurship di diplomacy. So be on the lookout and um, thank you again.